As I mentioned last week, we will begin a new series this morning, look at the biblical definition of family. And as we do, I want to just uh, begin by recognizing something. I, I hope sincerely that uh, you know that I've been doing this long enough that you understand that I'm, I'm not an alarmist. I really try hard to make sure that I don't over-sensationalize something just to get a response from you. I, I think we have a good track record together of just looking at Scripture and letting it speak for itself. That being said, I want to be honest with you this morning and tell you that I do believe that we are living in the midst of a crisis. It's a crisis because as far as I can tell, for the first time in the history of Western civilization, we are now confronted with the need to define the fundamental relationships of marriage and family. And the reason that need exists is because our culture is redefining them for us. And they do so by increasingly moving away from a biblical framework in support of the more preferred ideals of human freedom and self-determination. In other words, we as a culture are increasingly caring less about what God says and more about what we want, what seems right in our eyes. And the crisis is this. With every new generation, we move farther and farther away, increasingly detached from a biblical worldview. It's like that analogy of putting a, a frog in water and then just slowly turning up the heat imperceptibly to the point that it eventually boils to death. Our increasing tolerance of moral compromise will ultimately lead to a deadly destruction. As a people, we need to turn back to God and put our trust in Him and His original design to experience the fullness of the goodness that He created for us when He established these relationships in creation. We need to trust Him and not be taken captive by the deception of the world because that deception has a destructive impact that ultimately intends to destroy what God has ordained. I want you to take, for example, an example of a very popular show uh, that uh, a lot of people enjoy. It's called The Modern Family. Um, probably familiar with that uh, show. You might be interested to know that the original title of that show was The American Family. Okay? The reason that's the case is because, as the critics have indicated, this is a show that is a culturally defining series. In other words, America, this is your new normal. Now, I admit that I had not seen an episode personally. <laughs> I thought, well, if I'm going to speak to this, I need to be informed. So I watched an episode uh, this week as I prepared. The show centers around an older divorced man by the name of Jay. This is actually, if you've uh, 
my age, you recognize this man. He's the guy who was the father and married with children. <laughs> what a great role model. <laughs> but he's now remarried to a much younger divorced or single mom. They had kids separately in other relationships, came together and had a, a child of their own. But all the relationships in this little nuclear family are fairly equally dysfunctional. And the dad, as is often the case uh, today, is, is portrayed as being completely disengaged from the family. In this, in this particular show, <laughs> oh, it's so sad. Um, he, he, the, the show centered around his, uh, uh, the, he was so disengaged that the, the baby that they had had together didn't know him as dad. And so he got so excited in this episode when he finally said his name, Jay, because he recognized who he was, but he didn't know him as father because that's what he called the others who had invested in his life. He called them dad. Well, Jay and, uh, uh, has two older uh, children. The first one is a, a woman who's married, has three kids. Um, the show also revealed uh, in the episode I watched that uh, that first child was out of wedlock that was a secret, nobody knew that, and it was kind of part of the portrayal of that family's relationship that really existed with manipulative deception in order to keep peace uh, among the, the family and the kids. Uh, Jay also has another adult son, his name is Mitchell, uh, Mitchell's gay, and in this particular episode, he and his partner were diligently planning their same-sex marriage after having already adopted a Vietnamese little girl. So there you go. That's your new normal. Divorce, disengaged dads, premarital sex, love through manipulation, homosexuality, a culturally defining series of the American family. And I'll admit to you, when I watched this episode, it's funny. <laughs> I laughed out loud at some of the portrayals and scenes that went on that it was comical. But in the end, it's really sad how far we have drifted away from God's design. And I think even we as Christians have become so callous that we actually find humor in things that ought to break our hearts. I think as Christians, we've kind of learned to live within the new norm. It's just the way it is. It's the culture we live in. Therefore, we don't really talk a whole lot about traditional family values because those are often seen as judgmental and narrow-minded because our culture believes that it has progressed beyond such archaic ideas. And so here's what's happening. If you've ever had this, I know we've probably all had this, you, you see a string on your shirt, right? It's kind of sticking out, it bothers you. And so you pull on it, and what happens? It unravels the whole seam of that shirt, right? Well, in our culture, I believe marriage and family is that loose thread. That when we pull on it and remove God's original design, we unavoidably destroy the very fabric of our society. We quite literally start coming apart at the seams. Because God has divinely created relationships in His image to be the framework of human society. This was His idea. He came up with it. 
And when we live within that design, we experience all the fullness and goodness of a gracious and loving God. He created it for our good and ultimately for His glory. But if we, in our sinful pride, decide to operate outside of His design, then we will reap the destructive consequences of that decision. And keep in mind, this progressive decay, if you will, is not just some unintended evolution. We're just not watching something that's just happening by chance. Let's be clear that there is an enemy behind what is taking place. Satan's goal is now and always has been to destroy what God has created. And he does so by purposefully twisting and disrupting the original design. For example, God created man and woman to live a lifetime in a one-flesh relationship. And then right off the bat, what does Satan do? He comes in to destroy and separate what God has joined together. And it has progressed to the point within our culture that we have no-fault divorce, which essentially means we've got irreconcilable differences. We just agree to move on. It didn't work out. And then on the other hand, what God created to be separate, as in one man should not lie with another man, or one woman with another woman, God or Satan comes in and says, no, that's not true. We bring those together. It's an equally valid relationship as all others. What God intended to bring goodness. Satan has come in to do just the opposite, to bring destruction. No-fault divorce, homosexuality, sex outside of marriage, abortion. These are not new freedoms. They are enslaving lies of Satan. God's design is intended to protect us, to bring us good. Satan's deception is intended to destroy us. So in the end, this is not just a cultural crisis. This is ultimately a spiritual crisis. And what that means is that we should not look to the government to solve our problems with the decisions that they make. We should look to God's Word and the testimony of His church to proclaim what the design is intended to be and then live accordingly. But we can only do that if we are willing to rebuild our understanding of marriage and family according to the framework of a biblical design. We have to believe that God's Word is the blueprint for the foundation and framework of all relationships created in His image in order to bring about His good and perfect will. So our commitment over the next few weeks is to do just that. To literally go back to the drawing board and see what God's design is. And then commit ourselves in trusting God and His goodness and love for us to live according to that design. So as we begin that together this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. And with just the confession of how easy it is to accept a new norm, even though that is so far from what you originally intended. We want to pray for the forgiveness 
of our tolerance and things that we should stand firm in and should display in our own homes what it looks like to live according to the biblical framework established by you for our good and your glory. So I ask, Father, that as we as a church family look at your word together, that you would bring clarity and purpose, that we would understand the goodness of your design and in trusting obedience, follow it, expecting that it accomplishes your good and perfect will. Guide us and direct us. Give us eyes to see as we carry that out over the next few weeks. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, let's go back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Familiar passage. I want you to look at that with me. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. This is speaking of the creation of God as He begins His work, saying in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. So we see right here in the beginning that man and woman equally created within the image and likeness of God. Now flip over to Genesis chapter 5, verse 3. Genesis chapter 5, verse 3. It says, When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness according to his image and named him Seth. So man, woman, created in the image of God, bear a child created in their likeness, which was bearing that same image of God. And generation after generation after generation, the same continues to be true. So that every man, woman, boy and girl born into this world bear the image of our Creator God. And then in the New Testament, we see the birth of the church. And that that church, that new living organism designed by God is called the Bride of Christ. The household of faith. Where you and I come together as brothers and sisters in Christ. So we look at the testimony of Scripture and we see how marriage and family and church family were all created by God in His image. And they all bear the imprint of the divine. And it's through these relationships that we are sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit to conform us into that image of God by which we were created to His glory and to His praise. So wouldn't it make sense if that is true, and we believe it is because it's recorded in Scripture for us, that if we're going to understand the relationships created in the image of God, then we should begin with our understanding of who God is and whose image we were created. So that's how we're going to start this morning. And I wish I could take credit for this. I told you last week that there will be things that happen during the year that we couldn't have planned, but they just show evidence that God has prepared good works beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, here's our first, Exhibit A. 
What we will talk about this morning just so happens to coordinate with what we will be talking about last week and then tonight in the doctrine of the Trinity. I didn't plan it that way. It just happened to to turn out that way. But I think God wants to have our attention as we walk through this together. Now, what we will do this morning is more like a 30,000-foot view. And you'll come tonight, you'll hear more of the details of this important topic. But here's what's important for us to consider this morning. God has revealed himself in three persons who share equally in one undivided divine nature. And we're going to unpack that together, but that's the point of what I want you to understand about how God has revealed himself as three persons in one undivided nature. Jesus himself testifies of that Old Testament proclamation that in Deuteronomy 6-4 when it says that the Lord our God is one. Jesus quoting that very same scripture is affirming that's true. And then we go on through the New Testament and see how there is an increasing understanding of how God presents Himself in the three persons so that we are then given the great commission by Jesus in the end to go therefore and make disciples in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. God, one undivided nature in three persons. But these are not three gods, but one God. Jesus affirmed this as well when he said, I and the Father are one. There is a unity that exists within that diversity of the Trinity. If you go over into Acts, Peter says to Ananias when he lied about the uh, property that he sold, he says, Ananias, when you lied to the Holy Spirit, you lied to God because they are one. God is one in His divine nature which is possessed fully, simultaneously, and eternally by each of the divine persons of the Trinity. They are one in their nature, but distinct in their roles and relationship within that fellowship of the Trinity. God in three persons, sharing equally in one undivided nature. Paul kind of brings this together in a passage that closes out his letter to 2 Corinthians. I want you to look at that with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. The final words of this letter to the Corinthian church, he closes by saying, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I want you to notice as you look at that verse how those three descriptive terms that he uses in the close of this letter are all terms of relationship. Grace, love, fellowship. These words require an object in order for them to exist. In other words, you can't have fellowship by yourself. Fellowship requires someone to be in relationship with. Love requires an object to be love. 
grace must be given away in order for it to be grace. And yet, all three of these attributes of the Godhead existed in their perfection before anything was ever created. Which can only be true if we believe and understand that God exists in this one undivided nature in the fellowship of these three persons of the Trinity. And I want us to unpack this together so you see exactly what that means. And I want us to begin with the love of God. And there's a passage in John 17:24 if you want to turn there. John 17:24 Jesus is praying towards the end of his life as he anticipates the crucifixion that is just around the corner. This really is his final prayer for his disciples and if you read it it's for us as well. In John 17:24 he says this, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world there it is before anything existed before anything was created he says that the father was loving the son in the undivided fellowship of the trinity This is an incredibly important point to understand. That God did not need to create anything in order to experience love. Because if that were the case, God would be lonely. He would be needy. Needy, in fact, to create us in order to experience what love is all about. And that would mean God needs us in order to be God. That He was incomplete until we came along. But that's not what Scripture says. It says that before anything else existed, the Father was loving the Son. And the perfection of that fellowship. And out of that perfect love, He created you and me. He is the Father. Because it is out of His love that He gives us life. That's why John says, beginning in 1 John 4, 7, you don't need to turn there. This is a passage that we looked at when we studied 1 John together. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God. Why? For God is love. Love existed before the foundation of the world, because God is love. And then if you were to look at that passage, it goes on in verse 9 to say how that love was then made known to you and I. It says, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, so that we might have life through Him. Again, He is the, the Father because He gives us life. And that life was made possible when He sent His Son so that we might be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's important to to keep in mind that Jesus didn't come into being when He came to the earth. 
As we've already said, he existed in that loving fellowship of the Trinity before anything else was created. John says in his gospel that in the beginning was the Word. And he explains as you follow those, that passage of Scripture that that Word became flesh, being Jesus Christ. And he says the Word was with God, and the Word, Jesus, was God. Max Lucado once said that, that Jesus is God with skin on. And I think there's truth to that. Or as the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His nature. Which is why the, it's the reason behind Jesus being able to turn to His disciples and tell them, when they ask, show us God and that's enough. And what does He say? When you see Me, you see the Father. Because I and the Father are one. There was never a time when the Son existed without the Father or the Father without the Son because their nature is undivided. Think about it this way. Think about the light of a lamp and how that that radiance of its brightness always coexists when that light is on. As soon as you turn that lamp on, brightness is simultaneously shining forth. And in the same way, the glory of God is never without the radiance of Christ. There was never a time when that radiance did not shine forth. But it's become visible to us when Jesus was born and displayed God's glory for the world to see. It's not unlike the physics of life. I wish John Walkup was here. This was his area of expertise in engineering. He could do a whole lot better job than I could as it relates to optics and the physics in regards to that. But here's what I do know to be true. It's a simple, simple reality. And that is that in a vacuum, light is completely invisible. You can't see it. Light is completely invisible. The only way that the human eye can detect light is when it bumps into something. When it is reflected off of an object. Well, the radiance of God's glory became visible to the human eye when it was reflected off the human nature of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We could actually see the love of God displayed in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why John, in that same passage, as he begins his gospel, says, For it, uh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he says, We saw His glory, the glory of the only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. He goes on in that same passage and says, For from Him His fullness we have received, grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth was realized through Jesus Christ. Do you see a repeated theme here? The love of God is displayed in a visible way to the human eye, through the grace upon grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul seems to tie these two together. If you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 with me. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Again, another familiar verse, but we see these connected in a beautiful way. When Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great 
love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead and our transgressions and sins made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. God's love was made known to us when He sent His Son, full of grace and truth, to be the light of the world, revealing to us the love of God. Now I want you to pause here with me and consider for a moment the reality of that unity of nature that exists in God, yet within that the distinctive roles of the Father and the Son. As we've said, the Father is not more loving than the Son. Instead, the love of the Father is made known in its perfection through the love of the Son. And yet, the Son did not send the Father. The Father sends the Son. In fact, Jesus said that it was His food to to do the Father's will. He explains to the disciples that even the words He spoke were not on His own initiative, but the Father abiding in Him was doing His work. So when we hear that, does that mean in some way that the submission of Jesus Christ in some way diminishes the deity of who He is? Does that make Him something less than the fullness of God? Absolutely not. Because the Scripture proclaims that the fullness of deity dwells in the person of Jesus Christ. And as hard as that may be for our minds to grasp, what God has revealed about Himself is that He exists in one undivided nature Will the fullness of deity dwells in all persons of the Trinity. And yet they relate to one another in very distinct and meaningful ways. We see the Father who so loved the world that He sent the Son so that whoever believes in Him would not perish but would have eternal life. And as wonderful And as great as that good news is, did you know that it would be incomplete if it ended there? Did you know that that wouldn't be enough? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ reveals the love of the Father. But our understanding and belief in what has been revealed is a work of the Holy Spirit. Maybe this will help with a little illustration. It would be like me walking down the streets of New York City with all the masses of people that exist there. And let's say that that mass of people included Terry's uncle from Virginia. I've heard about him, but I wouldn't know him if I saw him face to face in that crowd of people in New York City. The only way that I'm going to know who he is is if Terry's with me sees him, recognizes him, and introduces me to him. Well, in the same way, we cannot know Christ unless we are introduced through the work of the Holy Spirit. But it actually is not even that simple. It's much more amazingly miraculous. And here's why. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. You can just write that verse down, but listen to what it says. 
It says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So to go back to my New York City illustration, this would be like me finding a person that I'm not looking for who even if I was, wouldn't recognize him because I don't even know what he looks like. But that doesn't matter because I'm blind and I can't see anyone. Not looking. Wouldn't know it if I saw him. Can't see anyway. I'm blind. That's how hopeless we are in finding Christ without the work of the Holy Spirit. Think about that. That's our condition apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's the very reason that Paul tells the Corinthians, no one can say Jesus is Lord. No one can recognize Him. Nobody can be introduced into that relationship except by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what introduces us into that relationship with God. And we are hopeless without His help. The undivided fellowship of the Trinity is equally essential for the work of salvation in our lives. The Father sends the Son. The Son displays that love of the Father and the Holy Spirit gives us eyes to see and believe. And it's just as important to understand that like the Father and the Son, the Spirit has eternally existed before anything else was ever created. That's why you see in the Genesis story that the, the Spirit is what hovers over the waters. It was the power of the Spirit through the Word of God that brought all life into existence. And probably the biggest misunderstanding of the Spirit is that He's different from the Father and Son is more like a force than, than an actual person of the Trinity. But that's not true. Because the Spirit is talked about in Scripture, and, it, and we're told that the Spirit teaches us, that it prays or, or intercedes on, on our behalf, instructing us, that the Spirit can be grieved, that He can be resisted. The Spirit of God is a person in, in equal deity with the Father and the Son. In fact, you may remember when Jesus tells the, the woman at the well, He says, God is spirit. And those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. There's a great passage in Scripture that ties this together. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15. In writing to the Corinthians, he says, But to this day... Whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. This is a, a veil of unbelief. It's that blindness. It's the inability for us to see. It says, but whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And I want you to notice here that the veil is taken away. It, not something that you take away. It is taken away for you. But by who? Read on. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty or freedom. The Spirit of God, who is one with God, 
must remove that veil of unbelief in order for us to see that love being demonstrated through His Son, whose death on the cross and forgiveness of sin is what gives us freedom from slavery and captivity to that sin. See, if we respond in faith, look at what happens in verse 18. And we all, now talking to believers, with unveiled faith, we now can see in what happens, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the image, that same image, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. When you see and believe, then you cannot help be transformed as a work of the Holy Spirit so that the glory of God is now revealed in your life. It is reflected in who you are. I think it's incredibly amazing to see how that divine fellowship of the Trinity that brought all life into existence now works in the life of those who believe to recreate something new. The Father sends the Son to display the love of the Father through the sacrifice that was made on the cross for the forgiveness of sins so that we might have freedom and know through the work of the Holy Spirit who God is and what love means as we experience that fellowship with Him. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. That's why the writer of Corinthians goes on and says, Therefore, if anyone is a Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this, listen, is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one undivided nature, coexisting, in the fellowship of three persons as they carry out their distinctive roles without in any way diminishing the fullness of deity that exists within each of them as one undivided nature. That's the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. What a beautifully wonderful mystery. And now, as we go from here, we need to understand that everything that we talk about in terms of the relationships that God has created flows forth from the understanding of who God is. And in some ways, now you can understand why relationships are so complicated, right? (laughs) They're not easy. They're multidimensional. Everything we understand about relationships that God has created must be grounded in a biblical view of God as His one nature relationship is then reflected, listen to this, in the one flesh relationship of a husband and a wife. In the family, in the one name that they all share. In the church, in the one body. The oneness being experienced in the diversity of those roles of a husband and wife, of parents and children, of members of the body of Christ each living in unity, yet relating to one another in the diversity 
of those roles. It's the imprint of the divine reflected in the life of what God has created. So I pray that as we go through and and unpack this definition, this biblical definition of the family, and begin to, to operate more in that design that we find the truth that produces life, as we learn to live in the fullness of God's love that He created us to know. God, who exists in, cre- in community, created us to live in community. God, who exists in unity, created us to live in unity. God, whose equality is undiminished in His diversity, created us in all humanity to reflect His image in all these ways. Now, stretch your brain a lot this morning, so let me closes with a very important verse. Ephesians chapter 3. Turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. This is the passage that I hope will become increasingly evident, true, and known by each and every one of us as we walk through our time together. Chapter 3, verse 14. Here's our prayer. As Paul says that he bows before the Father, I do as well, and this is what he says. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, Melanie Park, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with the power through his Spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to Him, and all that fellowship of the Trinity that was just described, who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think according to the power that works within us. To Him be the glory in the church, in the marriage, in the family, and in Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen? Let's pray together. God, this is our heart's desire. That uh, verse really reflects what we hope will become the reality as we walk through Your Word as the foundation and framework of all relationships created in Your image, intended by Your design to carry out Your highest, most gracious, wonderful good. Pray, Father, that we, as we walk through this together, might become overwhelmed by the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of the love, that we might be filled up with all the fullness of God, experiencing that love in our marriages, in our families, in our church, because we trust You. And we believe that if we live according to Your plan, it accomplishes that which nothing else in this world can even come close to touching on its own. 
Give us eyes to see because of the work of your Spirit who removes the veil so that we can see the love of the Father and the gift of His Son. We pray this in your loving name. Amen. Have a great day.